This morning we're going to be focusing our thoughts on Psalm 131. Uh, So if you have a Bible near to hand, you might want to turn to that now. Um, You'll see it's a very short psalm, so we're actually going to read Psalm 130 as well, because there is a bit of a a link and a bit of a flow um, in these psalms. So we're going to start to read at Psalm 130 and then read on into Psalm 131. Psalm 130 then is a song of ascents. This is God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quietened my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. As we turn to God's word, let's pray and ask for the help of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is your living word. It's not merely human words, but that we we acknowledge that we need the help of your Holy Spirit if this is not just going to be something that washes over us and doesn't affect us. And so we humbly ask for that now. May you come and May you teach us, may we be those who are ready and willing to hear, and may we be conscious of your Spirit's work among us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This week I noticed on the homepage of the BBC News NI website uh, that there was one word that was missing I think it was on Friday I looked, and the word that was missing was COVID. Now, yesterday it came back on again, but um, for at least that one day, COVID wasn't mentioned. But did that mean that there was nothing to report, no news, nothing to worry about? No. Strange, isn't it? That even though the havoc and disruption caused by COVID is not what it once was, it's not like there's nothing to worry about. In fact, for many, as the news keeps getting worse and worse about the cost of living crisis, worries about health may now be replaced by worries about how to keep going financially. And if we're honest, many of us probably find it hard to be completely calm and content as we think about the future. Over the past two years, most people's anxiety levels probably have gone up 
at least to some degree. And for many of us, perhaps they show no sign of coming down. But while our general levels of anxiety may be higher than they once were, is it not the case that we've always faced a battle to find contentment and calm? Because we live in a world which is not perfect, and there are many problems and many competing desires and interests around us which threaten to upset the equilibrium of our lives. Even if life isn't going all that badly for us on a personal level, all we need to do is look at social media to see lots of people who seem to be having a lot more fun than we do. And we are bombarded on a daily basis with advertisements showing us what we are lacking and promising happiness if we buy more stuff. One social commentator has estimated that we see more advertisements in a single year of our lives than someone 50 years ago saw in an entire lifetime. That's bound to have an effect on us, isn't it? And it's in that context of the challenges that come at us from so many angles that Psalm 131 shines a calming light as it helps us reorientate our perspective and remember where our hope and confidence should lie. Now, you'll have noticed as we read through this psalm earlier on that it's not very long. In fact, it's the third shortest psalm. But just because it's very short, that doesn't mean that there's nothing to say. And I hope we'll see that there's actually quite a lot going on uh, in these few short verses. So I just did want to warn you at the start that short psalm doesn't automatically mean short sermon. But hopefully you'll keep with me. As you may be aware, this is one of the psalms of ascents. A series of 15 psalms running from Psalm 120 to 134. Which would have been sung by pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem for one of the key religious festivals of the Jewish year. And these psalms are not thrown together in a random order, but they're arranged in groups of three, with a similar pattern to the first, second, and third psalm in each trio. Now, we can't be completely hard and fast in how we designate the key aspects of each psalm, but broadly speaking, the first psalm in each group of three deals with some kind of problem or crisis. The second one then has something of a response to that problem. And then the third reflects the quiet stability and confidence that comes when we understand that God is in control and that the crisis or the problem need not overwhelm us. Psalm 131 is the third in its particular trio, which starts in Psalm 129, with the problem of the suffering that is caused to God's people by the enemies of God. Psalm 130 moves on to recognise that for the Christian, as well as the problem of God's enemies, there's also the problem of his own sin. He may want God to deal with and judge his enemies, but he doesn't want God to deal with him in the same way because of his sin. 
But as he waits for God and puts his hope in him, he realizes that with the Lord, there is forgiveness and full redemption. God alone is his hope in the face of his enemies and in the face of his own sin. And so having realized that, the psalmist is able to come to the place of serenity and contentment that we find in Psalm 131. There are probably different ways of describing the state of David as he writes this psalm, but calm and content is probably not too far off the mark. He's not striving, he's not anxious, but instead is calm in his spirit. And we see several reasons for that in this short psalm. In essence, though, I want us to see two main things about contentment and where it is to be found. The first is negative, and the second is positive. So the first thing is that contentment and calm is not to be found in proud focus on ourselves. Contentment and calm is not to be found in proud focus on ourselves. In verse 1, David says three things that are kind of along that line. He says that he's not lifted up or proud. He also says his eyes are not raised too high. And then he says that he does not occupy himself with things that are too great and marvelous for him. And we're just going to take a moment to think about each of those in turn. When David talks about his heart not being lifted up, I think what he's getting at here is the attitude of self-sufficiency, which leads us to think that we are in control, that we can sort whatever problems come at us, that whatever we have achieved is down to us and our efforts. And as the famous words of the poem Invictus proclaim, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of of my soul. To some extent, that perhaps typified the kind of attitude that was so pervasive in our media over the period of the pandemic. We heard a lot of people confidently make assertions on all manner of subjects, with scarcely anyone ever saying that they'd got anything wrong or that some decision was a miscalculation. For the purposes of political point scoring, Others may have challenged decisions that were taken, but rarely did we ever hear anyone say, I felt out of my depth with the scale of what was happening and the decisions that I was having to take. Perhaps it's one of the characteristics of the proud heart that we never want to admit that we are wrong, that we've always got it right, and we can spin it whatever way to make sure that is the case. We may criticise others, but... We can't take criticism because we dare not admit any weakness. And we see that carried over into all sorts of decisions that people make in terms of their life choices. The proud heart says that what I feel is right is the right thing to think or say or do. It says that no one has the right to challenge me or my decisions. And that if you don't fully support me, and affirm me in all of those choices, then you hate me or are abusing me. We may talk about the snowflake generation that is growing up around us, who struggle with any form of challenge and need to be affirmed regardless of how good or bad their efforts are. 
But there are people of all ages who need to be affirmed at every turn and dare not be questioned. And it's natural to behave like that if you've been told that you are in charge. You have endless potential and you can be who you want to be because you are in charge of your destiny. But the problem is that if I am in charge, then there's no one else to blame if things don't work out the way I'd planned. And so if I don't want to be crushed by my failure, then I have to say that I haven't failed, that I know what I'm doing and that above all, I'm doing it my way. But the problem with the proud heart is that it's exhausting always being right. And deep down, there's surely the niggling feeling that maybe I don't know best all the time. And so the proud heart is not the way to calm and contentment, as David acknowledges in this psalm. And let's not forget that David was king of Israel. He had every reason to think that he had made it and was above contradiction. And yet we know that he didn't always make the right choices. And so he needed to realize that even being at the top of the ladder wasn't what it was all about. He needed the humility that recognized he wasn't always right. But alongside that attitude of heart, he also speaks of the attitude of his eyes. He says that his eyes are not raised too high. And there I think he's focusing more on his attitude to others. Eyes that are raised high are going to be looking down on other people. And again, it's not too hard to see that in ourselves or in others, is it? We like to compare ourselves favorably with others, and we'll always look for the things that we're better at. So we mightn't be as fit or sporty or as athletic as someone, but we reckon we're more intelligent. Or we mightn't be as musical, but we're more practical. Or we mightn't be as rich, but we've got more friends. And so it goes on. And it's not just something that we do as individuals. And we also sometimes do it collectively. Our team is better, whether that's Liverpool or Man United or whoever. Our family is better. Our school is better. Our business is better. Our church is better. Or perhaps it's the kind of thing you find when groups of people express moral outrage at the behavior of certain individuals or other groups in our society. We're not the kind of people who would behave like that. And we compare ourselves favorably against murderers and child molesters and Vladimir Putin. Again, though, the problem with that is that we're not perfect. And when we become aware of any deficiencies, that can cause us huge anxiety because we're not sure if we can look down on others in the same way. And so we have to rush to self-justification again and to prop up our own egos by trumpeting our successes, whatever they might be. More posts on social media of <clears throat> something exciting that we've done or our children have done or whatever. In order to be able to look down on others, we need to have been successful in whatever terms we measure success. 
But that leads to constant striving to prove ourselves better, constant activity to justify our worth, and almost certainly a lack of calm and contentment. David, as we said, as king of Israel, was at the top of the tree. He could look down on everyone else. And yet he realized that constant comparisons with others were not healthy. And he probably also realized that looking down on others was unlikely to win many friends or inspire devotion and loyalty among his soldiers and servants if they just thought, oh, you think you're so much better than us. So David has chosen the path of humility. And in so doing, he's also admitted that some things are outside his control. When he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He doesn't mean he's no interest in the world around or in knowledge or in how to do things. God has given him a mind as he has to us all so that he could understand more of this world and how best to function in it. But David knows that there are limits to what he as a mere man can know and do. The marvellous things that he's talking about are the things that God alone can do. So while we may understand in geographical terms why the earth spins and the sun rises and sets, we can't make that happen. While we may understand how human life is formed, we cannot make every couple conceive. And while we may be able to foresee risks and mitigate against them, we cannot stop them altogether. Surely in recent times we've seen that there are some things beyond our control, even down to something as basic as why one person in a house gets COVID and no one else gets it, or in another house everyone else gets it. And even aside from that, there, there are many things in this life we can't explain. Why does someone get to 80 with hardly a day's sickness in their life and somebody else in their 20s and 30s is plagued with ill health? And sometimes you just have to say, I can't explain that. Because, again, it's an exhausting way to live if you always want to have all the answers. You always want to be in full control. You need to have the answer to everything. As we looked at how not to be calm and content, I wonder if you've seen that effectively that is the way of this world. There is a restlessness in those who do not know Christ, a discontent, a desire to be someone, to feel in control. Often it's not maybe expressed, but if you look below the surface, is everyone really as sorted and together as they want you to think? Because they want you to think that they are. The problem, though, is that if we call ourselves Christians, we can probably see quite a bit of what I've been talking about in ourselves. We'd love to say, I know I'm not in control, and I don't pretend I am. I'm not jealous or envious of others. I don't compare myself with anyone else. I'm just content with the person that God has made me to be but we're maybe not sure if we can really claim that that's completely true of us. So what are we to make of verse 1 of Psalm 131? Do we just despair and think, well, there's no hope for us? I don't think so, because if you look at the start of verse 2, 
David says, I have calmed and quietened my soul. He doesn't say, you have calmed and quietened me. He hasn't been magically zapped by God. He has had to make an effort. And so I think that we can read verse 1 in the light of that and infer that there is an effort involved in not doing the things that David talks about in verse 1. He's had to force himself to accept that he is not the master of his faith, that he is not inherently better than others. He's not in control of the big matters of life and death. And so we should be encouraged by that to make a similar effort, to check ourselves from time to time and consciously turn from those proud attitudes that are ultimately so destructive. But we need to remember that this is not simply an effort of the will. As the psalm goes on to show us, it is when we know where our hope and our confidence truly lies that we can resist the desires of our natural state towards pride and self-sufficiency. Because the second thing I want us to see from this psalm is that contentment and calm is to be found by trusting in the Lord. Not in ourselves, but in the Lord. And there may be a part of us that goes, well, of course, that's the answer. If we've been Christians for years, we know that we should be trusting in the Lord and not in ourselves. But just because that's the obvious answer doesn't mean that we still don't need to hear it. Because there's so much around in this world that tells us the opposite and tells us to look to ourselves to sort things out, that we are in charge. That's why we need the truth of God's word to keep coming and reminding us that calm and contentment is only to be found by trusting in the Lord. Ultimately, that kind of negative behavior and thinking that verse 1 is getting at stems from a failure to trust in God. And so we need to keep reminding ourselves that he is in sovereign control, that we don't need to impress him, and that he loves us and accepts us unconditionally. The image, though, that David uses is an interesting one because he says that he is like a weaned child with its mother. In David's day, a child would have been weaned when he or she was maybe about three years old. So no longer a baby, but able to walk and feed themselves, and yet still needing the watchful eye of a mother and content to have that security on hand. This is not the child who no longer needs a parent's help and has become independent, but equally not the helpless baby who can do nothing. In some ways, David seems to be using this weaned child as the picture of perfect contentment. And I think it does capture something of the balance that we need to strike between the fact that God wants us to mature as Christians. He wants us to grow up in our understanding, but not to the point where we think we know it all and we don't need him. So is God going to give us a direct word telling us what job we should take or whom we should marry or where we should go on holiday or whether we should change our car or even where we should serve in the church. Well, no, he's given us minds, and so we should use them. 
But does that mean then that we shouldn't think about God in the decisions that we take? Well, absolutely not, because we need to read his word to understand whether certain things are off limits, because he has clearly said not to do them, and whether certain things are fine for us to do, but he's given us minds then to use the wisdom that he gives us to make wise decisions and to check our hearts so that the things that we're doing are not just things that we're doing because we want to do them, but actually because they're things that we believe God is happy with. Like the child looking to its mother to go, should I do this? Is this okay? <clears throat> so we shouldn't just be going for that job or that promotion because there's more money um, and that's what it's all about. Or changing our circumstances just so that others will think well of us, buy a better car, <clears throat> move house, just because of how that will go down in our circle of friends. God never wants us to become independent of him, but he wants us to become secure in who we are because we are secure in him. At the end of Psalm 130, which we also read, it ends with these words in verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And it's that same theme that's echoed at the end of Psalm 131. When David says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. We need to place our hope in the Lord. Because with him there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. He is the one who loves us no matter what. He's not loving us because we've made such a wonderful success of our lives and we've been so in control of everything. He is the one who can forgive and restore us when we come back to him because he knows what we've done. He's not shocked or surprised by it. He is the one who accepts and forgives us. Not because of all our anxious striving to prove ourselves, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Because it's when we look at the Lord Jesus that we see the one above all others who was not proud. Remember that Jesus himself would have spoken the words of this psalm. And he spoke them with ultimate truth and sincerity and conviction because he was not above others. He was the one who was willing to make himself nothing and who entrusted himself to the Father's will, not striving with him, not trying to find an alternative salvation plan, but going to the cross because he knew that was what God intended. And as he trusted himself to God the Father, his hope was not in vain. Because God has now exalted him to his right hand. And he holds out that hope of a secure, eternal future to everyone who trusts in him. There is, of course, a challenge in this psalm to anyone who has never put their hope in Christ. And it's a liberating one. 
This psalm is saying you don't have to strive to prove that you're in control and that you've got everything sussed and sorted and that you're a really great person. You just need to trust in Jesus who knows how rubbish you really are but who loves you and considers you to be infinitely precious. Can I encourage you to think seriously about that if you haven't? before to recognize that only with Christ is there real security that what this world seems to offer in terms of its adulation or affirmation actually comes to nothing what really matters is what God thinks of us and what he thinks of us is dependent on what we think of Jesus and how we have responded to him But there is also a real challenge in this psalm to those of us who are Christians. To be people who don't just say that we hope in the Lord, but actually do demonstrate that. Because we don't just rely on our own ability to work things out. We're actually praying and asking for God's help, recognizing that we need his strength in every situation that we face. Let's be those who show that our hope is in the Lord because we're not thinking we're better than other people. We know what we're really like. And we know what we're like before God. May we be those who truly are calm and content because we are trusting that God really is in control. So whether I get a great job or I lose my job, whether I find a wonderful life partner or never get married, Whether my children end up living in a five-bedroomed house or a one-bedroom flat. Whether I'm still going strong at 90 or struck down at 50. None of this can shake me because my focus is not on me. Now what this world holds dear but is on Christ and the guarantee of steadfast love and full redemption that he gives to me. This is not an easy thing to do. This is not the most natural thing in the world, to be calm and content. If it were, everyone would be. There'd be no news to report because nothing would be that exciting, just all be nice and happy. It's not easy. Even for Christians, it's not our natural response to say, I'm not worried, God is in control. And so we need to keep coming back to him acknowledging that we need him. We need him for every aspect of our lives, from the smallest worry to the thing that threatens to overwhelm us and blow our lives apart. And above all, we need his forgiveness every day as we look forward to the eternity that we can never achieve, living forever in the presence of of our heavenly father in a perfect new world that he is going to make. That's something too marvelous for us. We can't even make this world perfect. Sometimes we don't even feel we're making it that much better. God is the one who guarantees us that wonderful eternal future. That is why we need to put our hope and our confidence in him now. And that's why even this week, as we go about our daily lives yeah they'll not be free of stress they'll not be free of worry 
But are we looking to God? Are we trusting in Christ, knowing that he is in control and our future is secure with him? He is utterly reliable. He is utterly dependable. He is our only hope in life and death. Let's pray together. Father, we want to acknowledge that we live in a world and in a society which has largely sidelined you. In our news, we're not being told to put our trust in you. We're being encouraged to trust in ourselves, the triumph of the human spirit or whatever it may be. Lord, help us to hear the truth of your word as it brings real comfort to us because it reminds us of who you are. May we not be like the world around us. May we humble ourselves before you. And in doing so, may you bring us to that place of calm where we can trust in you no matter what, because you have our futures secure. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.